You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. All right, good morning. If you all want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you so much for coming. Welcome to New City Church. Uh, As Nick said, my my name is Caleb Billingsley. I'm just a regular church member here. Um, Nick gives me the opportunity to get up once a month or so and preach. I'm I'm so thankful for the opportunity uh, to be able to do that this morning. We're, We're going to look at Matthew chapter 26. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We've been in this series called Gospel Fluency. Basically, we want to be people who are shaped by the gospel, who speak the gospel. We want the gospel to come off of our lips as naturally as any other conversation. We want to be good at sharing the gospel and living the gospel, speaking the gospel in our homes, in our workplaces, and wherever we are. And so that's what this series has been about. Today, we're going to look at one more um, area of gospel fluency. It's called the gospel around the table. The Gospel Around the Table from Matthew chapter 26. I want to begin with a question. It's a heavy question, probably not the best way to start a sermon. What if by tomorrow afternoon you knew, what if you knew that by tomorrow afternoon you would be dead? It's a heavy question to consider. How would you spend the last few hours of your life? Would you finally go and rush to do that one thing you've always wanted to do? Whatever it is, maybe it's skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu, right? It's a Tim McGraw song, by the way. Live like you were dying. What would you do? 24 hours from now, if you knew you were going to die, our Lord was faced with this question. We would do well to consider how he chose to spend his last night before his execution. He knew what was going to happen to him. Jesus did both the most normal thing he could have done and one of the most meaningful things in all of Christian history. He ate supper. He gathered around a table with his friends. They broke bread together and they drank wine. You see, throughout the Bible, the act of eating is repeatedly filled with significance. In Genesis, God provides food for Adam and Eve. Sin enters the world through the eating of food. We have the story of the Passover we're going, to talk about, we're going to talk about that in a minute. You have the wilderness miracles of God providing manna to the Israelites and water from a rock. Psalm 23 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus fasted from eating for 40 days. Satan tempted him to eat. 
Jesus turns water into wine in Cana. Jesus feeds 5,000 Jews with five loaves of bread and two fish and feeds 4,000 Gentiles with seven loaves and a few fish. Feeding, eating, food, it's all over scripture. And here we come to Jesus and his disciples. And this is how he chooses to spend the last night of his life before his execution. Eating is multi-sensory. It involves all of the senses, touch, taste, smell, see. And if you're in my house, it's even auditory. Think about the, the crackling of a flat top grill, the sizzling of an egg in the pan, the clanking of silverware at the table, <laughs> and my daughter's favorite, the smacking of lips, the slurping of a drink, right? All of the sounds that accompany eating. Very few activities affect all five senses the way that eating does. Eating is celebratory. Imagine a celebration without eating. They don't exist. When we want to celebrate something, food is always included. Two days ago, I took my family out to a special dinner at Culver's because my kids love Culver's, and so do I. But we were celebrating the overturning of that horrific, murderous abomination of Roe v. Wade. It was a celebration for my family. I loved it. We ate cheeseburgers and custard to celebrate this fact. Every time we eat, we proclaim our dependence upon something and someone else, don't we? Every one of us needs something outside of ourselves to nourish our bodies. Without this outside source of nutrition, we die. Eating is the most normal thing we do, and yet it is infinitely profound. We're going to meditate together today on the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Now, before we begin, first let me say that the Roman Catholic understanding of the mass is something that we reject. That's not what the sermon is about. We do not believe that the bread we eat during the Lord's Supper actually becomes the body of Jesus. We don't believe that the wine or the juice we drink actually becomes the blood of Jesus. We believe that understanding is faulty. It's based on a wrong understanding of scripture and has actually done great harm to the cause of the gospel. But let's get back to our passage. Here we see that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 26, which we're about to read, he keeps the form of the Passover supper, but he gives it a new, deeper meaning. You see, just like everything else that takes place in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Last Supper is not primarily about the meal or the elements of bread and wine. They're about a person. Everything in these sentences is meant to draw our attention to Jesus who is this man who has the authority to establish a, a better covenant than the Passover covenant? Who is this man who puts himself in the place of the sacrificial lamb to atone for the sins of his people? Who is this man who claims to be bringing in a new and better kingdom than the kingdom that Moses was bringing in? Who is this man? The Lord's Supper symbolizes the new covenant of Christ that was established by the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins and looks forward to the completed kingdom 
of God. So let's look at those three things now. If you would please stand with me. Let's read from Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26. Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, give light to our eyes this morning. Help us to understand your word rightly, first of all. Give us correct understanding of the words of Scripture. And Father, by your Spirit, apply it to our hearts. May sinners repent of sin. May saints be strengthened. May we all leave here on mission to see the rule and reign of God established in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The first thing I want us to see from this passage is that Jesus establishes a better covenant. Remember, this is about Jesus. Jesus establishes a better covenant. Look in verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we've got to understand the context of this passage. What's going on? Jesus is in Jerusalem the most important city in the lives of the Jewish people at that time. He's there with his disciples to celebrate the Passover, one of the most important festivals of the year. Now, what was the Passover? What did the Passover commemorate? Okay, if you've grown up in church, if you're familiar with the Bible, you probably already know this. I'm going going to assume nobody knows what this means, okay? So we have to remember Way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They'd been oppressed in Egypt for 400 years. You remember how they got there, right? You have Joseph and his 11 brothers sold them into slavery. Joseph, they think he's dead. He ends up being vice president in Egypt, basically second in charge. There's a famine in the land. He brings his brothers uh, there, feeds them. Now they're a whole, the whole family's in Egypt. They have lots of kids for 400 years, and they become slaves in Egypt, oppressed by the Egyptians, okay? So what does God do? He raises up Moses. Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell them to what? Let my people go, right? So Moses goes to Pharaoh and does just that. Pharaoh, he says, yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, get out of here. No, right? He hardens his heart. This scripture tells us Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens his heart. Either way, he does not let the people go. So nine times of rejection, God sends plague after plague after plague. He turns the Nile River into blood, sends frogs. He sends gnats. He sends flies. He kills livestock, sends boils onto the people, hailstorms, locusts, darkness until the 10th plague is the death of the firstborn son. And this is where the Passover comes in. See, God made a way of escape for the people of Israel. He told them that on the evening of the plague, the 10th plague, they were to take a lamb from their flock, a lamb without blemish, a spotless lamb, and kill it. 
They were to take a bunch of hyssop, which was uh, kind of a mint uh, herb. They would dip the hyssop in the blood of the lamb and then spread the blood on the doorposts of their, and the lintel of their house. So you have up and down and across, up and down and across, spreading the blood on the doorposts. And then when the angel of death comes down to destroy the firstborn son of that house, which was the righteous judgment of God, he would see the blood of the lamb covering the doorway and he would pass over that house, sparing the life of the firstborn. And that night, the Israelites were to eat the Passover lamb with unleavened bread. They were to eat it with sandals on their feet and a staff in their hand. Why? Because once the death angel completed his mission, they were going to leave Egypt in haste into the wilderness. And God was going to lead them to the promised land. And Exodus chapter 12 says this. When it, after Moses gives the instructions about the Passover, here's the explanation for why this Passover feast exists. Exodus 12, 25. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service, by the Passover? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So for 1,500 years, up to the time of Jesus, the Israelites had been celebrating this feast, remembering God's great deliverance from Egypt. This is a massively important celebration. The Passover is referenced repeatedly throughout the history of Israel, all the way up to the time of Jesus. But here in our passage, Jesus is taking the Passover meal and he's filling the elements with new significance. He takes the bread and the wine, and rather than reminding the disciples of their deliverance from Egypt, he points to himself. He talks about his body and his blood and his kingdom. But that's not what the Passover is about. Who does this man think he is? He can take the most important event in the history of the Jewish people, a feast that has been celebrated for 1,500 years, and just reinterpret it to be about himself? What kind of arrogance does it take to change such an important festival and make it center around him rather than Yahweh? Now, of course, we know the answer to this, don't we? Who has this kind of authority? He is the one who has authority over sickness and disease. He heals by the word of his power. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He makes the lame walk and dries up the blood of those who are bleeding. He is the one who has authority over Satan and demonic forces. He delivers the demon oppressed by the word of his power. He commands them to move and they move. He commands them to keep their mouths shut and they obey. 
And when Satan tempts this man in the wilderness, he bears the temptation to its fullest extent, never giving in, never submitting himself to the false authority of hell. That's who has this authority. He's the same one who has authority over the wind and the waves. By the power of his word, he stops storms and stills the raging seas. He sleeps in comfort on a boat in the middle of a storm because he created all things. And from the moving of a molecule to the moving of a mountain, he's in charge. He is the one who has authority over the laws of nature. He multiplies bread and fish to feed those who are hungry. He pulls money from the mouth of a fish to pay taxes, not because he owes anything to Caesar, but to show that he owns everything, including Caesar. He's the one who has authority over death. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead and calls Lazarus out of the tomb after rotting for four days. And three days after this meal, he himself will rise from the dead, never to die again. And he will say to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And he will ascend to his father to be enthroned in heaven where he now sits as ruling king of the universe. Church, behold the authority of our Lord. He is the king of the universe. And yet he dines at the table with fishermen and tax collectors. He has the authority to make a new and better covenant, not because there was anything wrong with the first covenant, but because he is the fulfillment of it. You see, the covenant God made with Israel through Moses was not deficient in itself. It did exactly what God intended it for it to do. It pointed towards a new and better Moses, a new and better rescue that would come through the Messiah. Is an acorn deficient because it is not yet an oak tree? No, the acorn does exactly what it's meant to do. It's buried, it dies, and from its nature, a magnificent tree is produced. And so it is with the old ceremonial law of Moses. You see, the covenant that Jesus establishes at his last supper is the new, better covenant. And he has the authority to establish it because he is God in the flesh Scripture tells us he is the image of the invisible God. And in him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus establishes a better covenant, friends. But how? How is it better? In what ways is the new covenant better than the old? How does it overshadow and replace the old? That's point number two. Jesus is the better sacrifice. So not only does he have the authority to establish a new covenant, but he is a better sacrifice. You see, in the original Passover celebration, there were three main elements, the bread, the unleavened bread, the lamb, and the blood. At the Lord's Supper, those three elements remained and are filled with new, greater significance. The bread and the wine signify the body and blood of Jesus. But where is the lamb? The imagery is unmistakable, is it not? Jesus himself is the lamb. Now, 
Again, we have to go back to the original institution of the Passover to see what's going on here. Why were the people of God spared from God's judgment in Egypt? What was the difference? What was the active intervention that kept the angel of death from entering their homes and destroying the firstborn son? It was the blood of the lamb. That's it. It was not the righteousness of the Israelites. We know what happened as soon as the Israelites left Egypt. What did they do? They wanted to go back. They started complaining. They were not more righteous than the Egyptians. It was not their genealogy as Israelites. It was the blood of the lamb that saved them. When the death angel came to that home, he saw the blood and the exchange went like this. The lamb of God has died. So the firstborn son can live. The lamb died so that God can have mercy on this household. And we know that as the Israelites leave Egypt and enter into the wilderness, God gives them his law, the Ten Commandments. He institutes an entire system of worship. He instructs them to build a massive tent called the tabernacle. And they're to carry with them this tabernacle throughout their journey. Whenever they stop to camp, they set up the tent and they perform a system of sacrifices. God institutes the Day of Atonement, where once a year the high priest enters the tabernacle and offers sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people. When they get to the promised land and Solomon builds the temple hundreds of years later, the same sacrificial system continues for more hundreds of years, all the way up until the time of Jesus. So over and over again, the same principle remains. The spotless lamb dies so that God could have mercy on his people. You see, the problem for humanity has always been one and the same. The judgment of God against sinners. How can we escape his judgment when we have rebelled against him? We are guilty. God is a just God and he must punish sin. And according to the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. But I'd like for you to turn over to Hebrews with me. There's one passage I want us to look at. If you want to understand how does the new covenant overshadow the old covenant, man, the book of Hebrews is where you got to go, all right? We could spend months in the book of Hebrews. We're not going to do that. We're going to spend about 30 seconds, but we're going to look at one passage, but I want you to see it, okay? Because it's so important as we think about how does... The blood of Jesus, how is that different from the old covenant under Moses? Look in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1. Listen how the author of Hebrews describes what has changed. Look in Hebrews 9, 1. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. 
Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables and the ta- tablets of the covenant above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. So he's describing the tabernacle. Okay. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes and he, but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But here's where things change. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. Church, when we observe the Lord's Supper each week, this is what we are proclaiming. The lamb died so that we don't have to. Jesus, the pure, spotless lamb, put an end to the sacrificial system once and for all. He is the perfect high priest. He entered not into the physical tent, but the actual presence of God because he had no sin to keep him from the Holy of Holies. And he was slaughtered on our behalf. His body was given for us. His blood was shed for our sins. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. This is what we sing, church, over and over. We must never lose this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. We must never compromise on this church. Jesus died for us. There is an exchange that happens here. It is our only hope for forgiveness of sin. 
If we don't have this, we have nothing. What hope do we have to offer? If we don't have the hope of the lamb of God, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Friends, I don't know why you're here. I don't know what you came here with today, but our message to you this morning is that if you are here and you know that you are not a follower of Jesus, this is your hope today. You are a sinner. You've rebelled against God. We have all turned away. We have uh, we read in Isaiah chapter 53, we are all guilty of wickedness and trespasses. And friends, the angel of death will come for all of us at some point. We don't know when. But your sins can be wiped clean today by the blood of Jesus. Turn from sin this morning. Place your faith in him. If you want to talk about that, find me. Find someone here after the service and we'll be happy to share more with you. The third thing I want us to see is Jesus is the king of a better covenant. Jesus is the king of a better covenant. Look in verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So here we see that the Lord's Supper is not only meant to point us backwards to the body and blood of Jesus, but it's also meant to point us forward. See, we know that right after this supper, Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's crucified. And that's not supposed to happen to the son of a king. But the kingdom of God, friends, is a fundamentally different kingdom than the kingdom of man. It's a better kingdom. You see, in the kingdom of God, victory comes through sacrifice. Jesus wins by laying his life down. Jesus redeems his people from judgment by taking that judgment upon himself. As Paul says, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is how things work in his Father's kingdom. But we also know that death is never the end in the kingdom of God. We don't worship a dead Savior. He was raised from the dead on the third day. His body was transformed into a glorious body. He ascended to the Father where he now rules and reigns with all authority. You see, those who belong to the kingdom of Christ are not afraid of death because we know the one who holds the power over death. When we proclaim the Lord's death in the Lord's Supper, what we are saying is death, you have no power here. Our Lord has died and was raised so that we can live free from the fear of death. That's what it means to live as subjects of the kingdom of Christ. 
Death has been defeated. Jesus has conquered the grave. His spirit dwells in us and he is in charge. And now he invites his brothers and his sisters to join him around the family table and enjoy the fellowship of the kingdom. I'm going to drink this new with you, friends, in my father's kingdom. Rest, laughter, conversation, singing. These are things that mark the table of the kingdom. It's a family meal. See, so often the Lord's Supper feels like a funeral service. And there's an aspect of this that's true. We're remembering the gruesome, terrible death of Christ. But friends, that is not the end. We are also looking forward to the days when our bodies are raised from the dead and transformed to be like his glorious body. See, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about the Lord's Supper, he says, as often as we observe this Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death, pointing backwards, until he comes, pointing forwards. As we remember and celebrate the body and blood of Jesus, we do with one eye fixed on the future. Friends, the kingdom of God is here. It began with the coming of Christ. It was purchased by his blood, inaugurated by his resurrection. And anyone who's united with him immediately becomes a subject of that kingdom. This is the work that God is doing in the world, friends. He's establishing his rule and reign in the hearts of his people so that his kingdom continues to expand. His law is obeyed and his son is worshiped as the sacrificial lamb who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our salvation. We look forward to the day when that kingdom is consummated and final. And we are finally gathered around the table and the marriage supper of the Lamb is enjoyed. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we are both looking backwards at the finished work of Jesus and looking forward at the final consummation of the kingdom of His Father. Eating is both the most normal thing that we can do And it is infinitely profound. We're going to respond today the same way that we respond every week. First, we're going to reflect. I encourage you to reflect on what we've seen in this passage today. First, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has divine authority to establish a new covenant sealed with his own blood. Second, Jesus is the better and the complete sacrifice for sin. He is the only one who can finally atone for the sin of his people. And anyone who turns from sin and places faith in him is brought into the family and brought into the dinner table. And Jesus, third, is the king of a better kingdom. Those who belong to him are forgiven buried with him in death, and raised to walk in newness of life. And we look forward to the day when our salvation will be final and complete, and we are gathered around the family table with our Lord. 
Let's reflect on those truths this morning. But we're also going to remember. The way that we remember here at New City is to obey the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 11, to do this in remembrance of me. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper. We're going to remember these things, the body and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Looking forward to the day where we are gathered around the table with one another and with him. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper with hopefully a renewed and more profound understanding of what we're doing. And last, we're going to rehearse. And what that means is we're going to sing. See, God's people are a singing people. When we sing, we celebrate what God has done and is doing in our lives and the lives of Christians all over the world. Friends, we've been invited to the table of the king today. Now together, as a family, let's celebrate the new covenant purchased with the blood of Jesus and let's proclaim his death until he comes. Please pray with me. Father, nothing in this life is meaningless. Every moment, every meal, every conversation, every decision we make is full of meaning. You have made it this way. We thank you, God, that you have taken something that we do every day, multiple times a day, and you have filled it with such significance. And you have told us, and, and Christ has established this festival, this celebration, this ritual that we are to do as Christians. And in so doing, we are proclaiming the greatest truth to ever be proclaimed in the history of the world. The Lamb has died so that we don't have to. So, Father, now as we observe the Lord's Supper again, as we do each week, I pray, Father, that our hearts would be focused, that our hearts would be full, that our minds would be fixed on our Savior. We would be strengthened in our souls, Father, that we would be changed and that we would proclaim the Lord's death and we would look forward to the day of his return. Father, we thank you for, for your word and the way that it shapes our thinking and just for how profound it is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.